welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the fastest growing movie podcast out there where we talk all things film. On today's episode, we discuss Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. We in the killing Nazi business and cousin business is a booming. That's a bingo. <laughs> What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James. Today we're going to be doing Inglorious Bastards, which came out in 2009, written directed by the great Quentin Tarantino. Inglorious Bastards is actually ranked 85th all time on the IMDb user all time rankings. In Nazi-occupied France during World War II, a plan to assassinate Nazi leaders by a group of Jewish U.S. soldiers coincides with a theater owner's vengeful plans for the same. Tarantino, we've talked about him numerous times on this podcast, and he's obviously one of our favorite directors. I think he could be the most famous director around the world currently that's living. And I think that Inglourious Bastards is his best movie. I think all around the script, the production, the acting, uh, the music, um, the tone, and the story itself, I think, is a highlight in his crazy good filmography. And he's made movies. He's made so many great movies that you can go to people and be like, what's your favorite Tarantino movie? And they'll say a different one every time. So he has an, an eclectic filmography, but I think Inglorious Bastards is the top of the list. I actually agree. I think Inglorious is probably his best movie all around, but I think that Pulp Fiction is his greatest movie. And I think the best and greatest are different here. You know, best is like all around production wise, script, everything that has to do with the film. It's his best made film. But I think in terms of impact on cinema and, and in terms of just his his greatest film, it's got to be Pulp Fiction for me. But I, I would say that Inglourious is probably number two on the list. You make a good point because he did change the way uh, movies could be uh, depicted and um, how people thought about movies with Pulp Fiction. It was a really big game changer at the time. And also it being his second movie, that catapulted him into the fame he now knows because Reservoir Dogs was very much critically loved and was pretty successful but when and when that came out it was like wow this movie's amazing here's this new director with this film reservoir dogs but then pulp fiction put him on the map of being one of the preeminent directors on the entire planet so i could definitely agree with you there but i just think inglorious is it's a special movie i think the best way to support raiders of the lost podcast is become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast patrons get perks like messages personalized videos podcast schedules and the top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast also head on over to our brand new website raiders of the lost podcast.com to check out all of our sources of content as well as all of our merch we've got hats t-shirts stickers we also have custom movie posters that you can get from us so head on over to our new website become a patron support the show we appreciate everyone who does and has gotten some merch so far easily his best screenplay like i know Django's great and that's what he won his oscar for but when it comes down to just dialogue this might be the most exquisite film he's ever written maybe of the last 30 40 years because the dialogue is amazing it's it comes off like a play at times and it's so eloquent and and all the characters are so well spoken and obviously one of the best parts of the film is that it takes place with it's spoken with four different languages i think yeah four. Some, yeah so yeah. italian italian english french and german for the most part only about a quarter of the film is in english which i love i don't mind subtitles at all if it's a foreign film that's the way it should be yeah and the characters and i love that that part of it because you know we're set in europe it's world war ii so a lot of people in europe obviously speak languages besides english unlike those americans that only speak do you speak any other language besides english <laughs> do you speak, besides english you, you americans so i think that it's accurate to the location, the time period, and the characters and, and how realistic it would be. 
And and Glorious, he actually had been working on for 10 years. He was actually working on this script um, in the 90s, in early 2000s, and he had planned to make this before Kill Bill, but then he couldn't figure out a good enough ending for it. Um, and so he moved on and, and shot the Kill Bill franchise instead. So he's had this concept and story in his mind for a very long time. And I think it wasn't until the mid 2000s where he really started fleshing it out until it was ready to produce. But also there was a major influence on this film being as good as it was. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson is very good friends with uh, Tarantino and they've been, you, you told the story about how they first met kind of out of, because of uh, people talking about them being similar and they communicated and met up because of that. And since then they became very close friends. And then when Tar when Tarantino watched Paul Thomas Anderson's film There Will Be Blood, which came out two years before Inglorious, is two thousand and seven, he was so blown away by it and uh, impressed by it and also intimidated by it. It made it inspired him to make Inglorious Bastards as good as he possibly could because I think there was a point where maybe it wasn't quite the caliber of being a masterpiece. I think it might have been a little bit more fun and playful in terms of the story and, and the and the tone of it. But then, then after seeing There Will Be Blood, it inspired Tarantino to be like, okay, PTA did that. I have to try and top him with this movie. Hey, everyone. Do you want to be a guest on Raiders of the Lost podcast? We're doing a special giveaway for you to be on our show for Patreon members of Raiders of the Lost podcast. So if you're already a member of our Patreon, we love you and you are already entered into this contest. If you aren't a Patreon on our Patreon, all you got to do is sign up for one of the tiers. We have a $2 tier, a $5 tier and a $10 tier, each with different perks. If you sign up on our Patreon, we will enter you into the contest to become a guest on our show. We'll give you one week to become a patron and enter this contest. Go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast to become a patron today. Yeah, and also Inglourious marked this new kind of trademark for Tarantino in his career where as a filmmaker, he's been since then going into past historical events or, or time periods, making period pieces and He's obsessed now in a way with rewriting history and rewriting the past. He's done it in several films since then. I mean, obviously, Hateful Eight isn't like that, but it is going into the past. And then Django, it's not rewriting history, but it is exploring a, a time in the past. I could say it's rewriting. You in can a way, say that. In a way. No slave had ever done that. So you yeah, can say true. that it's so, rewriting yeah. history. So, but it's, it's just something that he seems to be doing a lot. And also, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is going back in time and, and rewriting history. Yeah. What do you? Why do you think he rewrites history? I think that maybe it's not that he hasn't, He's having trouble coming up with original ideas, but maybe he's just so fascinated with history. And then I, you always imagine what would happen in the world or how would we be living today if this happened? You know, what would happen if, if Carthage overtook Rome? What if, what would happen if, if, if Nazis won World War II? So maybe he like loves that idea and fascination, or maybe if you just, the butterfly effect, you tweak one thing in the past and it can set up the history for a different reality. And on top of that, if you notice, all of the changes he makes to history change tragedies into moments of like victory or triumph. And like we've talked about before, how he likes to turn the oppressors into the oppressors of the people who used to oppress them. And and he he seems to be fascinated with changing great tragedies. So with this film, he he wants to change the tragedy of the Holocaust into being a victory uh, very much early on in the war before too many people were killed. And also he changed the history of 
uh, a slave like Django taking control of his life. And then and once upon a time, he changed the tragic history of Sharon Tate and those other people being murdered by the Charlie um, Manson, Manson, by Charles Manson's gang. And so I think that there might, there's actually kind of like a, an emotional and personal touch to this part of Tarantino's career where I think he's getting more personal and although it doesn't look like it's a personal film, maybe he just feels so impacted by tragic moments. He's like, you know what? I want to change this and make it something positive and uh, victorious out of these huge tragedies in history. And also, I think he just likes giving a middle finger to the Nazis whenever he can. I mean, he does it once upon a time in Hollywood when he doesn't really have to do that yeah. with the scene with the Mikulski, Mikulski's uh, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, movie yeah. he just like torches them up with a flamethrower and they shoot Hitler like a thousand times yeah <laughs> like machine gun do, 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 do. so there's something about him wanting to get revenge like you said making the oppressed the new oppressors of the ones who were oppressing them and then you, you earlier you pointed out how this is a period piece and it marked a change in his career trajectory where um, he only start he only made period pieces starting with this film because before this his last movie movie was death proof and before that all of his movies were contemporary based upon the time they're in the 90s and early two th- early 2000s and so he had never done a period piece until inglorious and then he only did period pieces and I think the reason for that is because he likes to and Paul Thomas Anderson the same thing once he started with there will be blood then it's only period pieces from then on out. And only really uh, single character-driven storylines versus yeah. ensembles for yeah. PTA. Yeah, yeah, but I'm talking just period. And I think the reason for that is they try to avoid technology. And it, I think they find that storytelling is is easier and it's, you have a lot more avail- ability to really do whatever you want with period pieces as opposed to now if you write a story with a conflict. Most conflicts can be solved with a smartphone. And so that kind of eliminates your ability and the freedom to make a, a well-crafted, intricately woven story um, with all these uh, interesting beats. And so it eliminates so many possibilities having a smartphone. So I think they enjoy writing in the space outside of the contemporary technology we have. I think it makes the films more timeless as well, too. It's more of like an artifact that will last longer and will still be enjoyable in 50 years because it doesn't have the technology of today in it. And in, in Bastards... It does everything that you want in a movie from Tarantino. It's got humor and comedy. It's it's dramatic. It's got gore. Um, it's very witty. The dialogue is sensational. Revisionist history, obviously, which is his new M.O. And then also solid action. But the way this film was advertised before it was coming out, remember the trailers and, and all the ads and everything and the marketing campaign was like, oh, this is going to be a super intense action film. And like mm-hmm. every scene was like the bar scene with the shootout that was in the trailer. And, and you thought that, oh, there's going to be guns everywhere. But when you watch the film... There's hardly really any action going on in the scenes. It's a lot of dialogue, which I love so much about it. And the action that does take place lasts a few seconds at yeah, least. Because you have the you have the shooting in um La Petite's home, which lasts like five seconds. And then you have the bar shootout, which lasts like ten seconds. And then you have the bastards freeing Hugo Stieglitz, which lasts like two seconds. And then the final firefight, which you wouldn't really call it a firefight, it's more of a slaughter. So I wouldn't say it's an action scene. It's I would say it's like massacre. So there, the action that is in the movie, it's very brief. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in men's below the waist grooming. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost for twenty percent off and free shipping at Manscaped.com. Over two million men are using Manscaped products, including their incredible waterproof lawnmower 3.0 groomer, which has a built-in light. It's waterproof. It's soft to the touch. You can use this thing in the shower. Their products are phenomenal. Their boxer briefs, their deodorizers, their colognes. They've sent us everything that they sell, and I love every single thing they've sent us. So, fellas. 
You got to get on Manscaped. And everyone listening, these are great, amazing gifts for the men in your life. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout at manscaped.com to get 20% off and free shipping year-round. Yeah, and when you actually think about this film and you watch it, there's not a ton of actual scenes because so many last for so long, which is amazing. I mean, the opening scene, it's 19 minutes. The pub scene, that's 15 minutes. Just those two scenes alone, that's almost half of a movie in itself. That's an entire episode of The Mandalorian. Yeah, pretty much. No, that's that's, that's like, yeah, you're right. Almost almost uh, 35 minutes right there, 34 minutes. And so the low number of scenes, it's what creates this intimate experience for the audience member. It really pulls you and puts you into that world that Tarantino's created and it, it really makes you get a sense of the characters so much more by watching them talk so much and because the dialogue is so good you you don't mind it at all. That's always been Tarantino's style except for I would say maybe the Kill Bill movies have uh, more scenes than usual for him but otherwise every other movie whether, whether it be Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, uh, even Jackie Brown, uh, Death Proof, they have very long scenes and very few number of scenes and he likes to do that because it's the same thing as shooting with a long take of a camera like it pulls you into the movie more and keeps you invested in the the characters and the story that's unfolding in front of you because you're not cutting to a new moment or location so i think the longer you can stay in a scene while keeping the audience's attention without them growing bored the stronger of a storyteller you, you are and clearly he is the strongest storyteller there is probably and this film obviously takes place during one of the most troubled times in modern history probably the scariest moment in world history and you know nazi germany at this point they'd occupied 20 countries and they didn't plan on stopping and you know i think just a little background on why did hitler invade france germany realized that war with russia meant war with france so a plan an immediate attack on france through belgium hoping for a quick victory before slow before the slow moving russians could become a factor and also is a strategic point for when they would eventually go after great britain in the uk they actually took france in only a few days they're their army was so um, powerful and so um, high in technology at the time that France was completely overwhelmed by them. And it, it literally took them a matter of, I think, maybe three days to take over France. It's crazy how fast it happened. Yeah, you know, this is a sensitive to topic, obviously, when you have so much Nazi symbology on camera and you obviously are depicting Hitler. Obviously, he does it in a comedic way to make fun of him clearly. But also, you have to be aware that it's going to affect people. And I'm sure a lot of people aren't fans of the film. They're not really fans of even just seeing Nazis on camera in general. So, but I, I think you got to understand it's just a movie. He's I, just telling a story. And if you, if that's not for you, you just don't watch it. I would say if people aren't fans of this movie, um, it would be because of the tone. Um, because of because a lot of people might think it he's like poking fun at the Holocaust, which is not what he's doing. He's just you know, telling the story in a different way. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I think that it, it was very um, refreshing and it's just liberating to see. I mean, yes, the Allies did win the war eventually, but not until millions died. And I think it was refreshing to see um, the war end so quickly in this movie before too much damage had been done. And one of the best parts of the film, I think, is the music, and a lot of it is Ennio Morricone's music, which he didn't make it for the film. It's just he's, it's like how he used Ennio's music for Kill Bill, those two films, and some of his other projects in Hateful Eight. These are these are music that you've heard in the Spaghetti Westerns from the past, and The Thing. So, well, actually, no, that was for 
Hateful Eight. Hateful Eight was for the thing. So, but I, I just love Andy Morricone and he, he brings again that Western vibe that you love to see in Quentin Tarantino movies. And then also the Western vibe set in World War II. It's just a really cool um, aesthetic and atmosphere. But then also adding contemporary music too, like contemporary to our times, which he also did in, in Hateful Eight and in Django as well. So that makes the like tone- David Bowie cat people. Yeah, that makes the, the tone of the movie like, it, it kind of becomes like its own thing. It's not just a period piece. You and know what I mean? He also does this thing in this film where whenever there's a moment of, an, of deep tension, he'll just ramp up like an instrumental guitar or or just instrumental drums and, and, and bass. And it just it makes a moment so much more intense, especially with scenes with Hans Landa. And then he also will cut the music abruptly when he changes scenes. Yeah, I guess who we got that from? Marty. Marty Scorsese has been doing right. that for decades. I really, I think my favorite p- part of music in the entire film would be uh, in the opening scene when you have that famous uh, piano song. Dun, 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 dun. I think it's Beethoven, maybe. Um, but everyone can recognize the piano song. And uh, what happens is they do that theme and then they finish it, the song with electric guitar. So it's a blend of just the piano. And then it follow, it's followed up by electric guitar finishing that theme. I think it's really brilliant um, and a, a great way of depicting the two sides of that um, discussion, the two, two sides of that scene um, and the two perspectives of that scene. And this film is stacked in terms of the cast. The, the, the actors in this film are amazing. We have Christoph Waltz, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, Melanie Laurent, uh, Brad Pitt, Eli Roth, Michael Fassbender, Dan, Dan, Diane Kruger, Daniel Brühl. The cool thing about this is a lot of these people, these actors, they weren't huge stars yet. Obviously, Fastbender right now is very famous, especially with with film buffs and Diane Kruger. She was already pretty well known. She actually played Helen in Troy. If you ever seen that movie, I think she had a National Treasure before this. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then Daniel Bruhl, uh, he was actually in that that racing movie that Ron Howard made. That was well after this, though. Yeah, so and that's Rush, what I mean. So Rush, like that yeah. got him exposed to American audiences, and then this, Civil War. Yeah, and yeah. Um, this basically. Christoph Waltz like basically exploded out of nowhere because he was really just a stage actor in Germany. He did a lot of TV movies, a lot of TV shows. He was doing just mostly soap operas. Yeah, he was just doing – TV movies are big in Germany, and he was doing like one or two a year. But that's about it. But aside from that, he was doing the stage, and he just exploded. And now he's just been so many great characters since then. He's got two Oscars. But it seems like Tarantino just plucked this guy out of nowhere. Part of the reason for casting him was because of his um, – ability to speak in multiple languages he he is already fluent in german french and english uh he didn't speak italian before this movie but he learned the lines of italian in the uh, third act of the film for this movie tarantino was actually thinking about casting dicaprio as hans landa but then he realized he because dicaprio actually is part german and he can speak some german but he's not nowhere near fluent but he can he just speaks a little bit of german but nothing more than just casual conversation um, yeah, and it probably would sound awkward if he isn't a fluent German speaker. Now here's this dense script full of German and French language. Yeah, exactly. So he, Tarantino realized I need someone who can bounce between these languages already, like as a as as just a non actor, someone who can already do this. And so I think, and so that is what brought Christoph Waltz to audition for him. And then once he saw him reading out one of the scenes, he knew immediately that this was the guy because he effortless, effortlessly speaks these three languages and and then the fourth Italian um, with so with such ease and he's he's so because different languages and, di- and dialects they have different paces of speaking and um, different tones 
and inflections and it, there's so much that goes into it just not just speaking a different language but and how you speak it you know what i mean and he he like when he goes into italian it's like well that's italian you know what i mean it's, he sounds like an italian speaker speaking italian and same thing with french so i think that he's a, an innately talented as a linguist which helped him get the role and just very intelligent and he plays colonel hans landa who's easily the most interesting terrifying character in the film and in a way you could call hans landa kind of like an evil version of sherlock holmes he's very clever he's very perceptive he's energetic he's also incredibly driven towards self gain they're both detectives one for good one for evil he even talks about nazis and the fuhrer as they're his employer rather than an ideology that he believes in so it seems like he's a character who is more focused on just finding success by whatever means his skill set is pushed to and he obviously he's an austrian nazi so he's not austrian born in germany the nazi germany they took over austria like the snap of their finger they just walked in and they they were greeted with cheers from austrians yeah, the, the austria citizens a lot of them viewed the nazis coming in as like they're a savior from how horribly their country had been run for decades and so you can imagine that hans landa was probably one of the best detectives maybe a military policeman in austria and obviously his talents were going to be very useful for the Führer in his plans and carrying out whatever he's doing in France. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online today. If you're checking out our set online on YouTube, you'll see that our set is decked out with these amazing posters from this company. They are high quality, pretty much any movie imaginable. Any kind of sizing, framing, backlighting, movieposters.com can do it. They've also teamed up with us to sell our exclusive Raiders of the Lost Podcast custom movie posters. Head on over to RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com to check those out, along with the rest of our merchandise. Again, Raiders15 at movieposters.com. Raiders15 at movieposters.com. There's a, there's a couple Sherlock Holmes references in the movie, and I think obviously the the most visible of them is the pipe. Yes, yeah, the same pipe. Yeah, same same pipe. And but Hans Landa, he's also a master manipulator because whenever he uh, finds himself, well, not finds himself, puts himself into a confrontation, he makes it seem as though it's not a confrontation for the other person. Like he put, he kind of like uh, feigns innocence and uh, professionalism and naivety um, to kind of trick the other party into like falling into a bit of an ease. Um, and then when he's ready, he like breaks, he breaks his trap and he takes over the, the entire conversation or the situation. So for example, that scene with Le Petit, he's very professional. He's very bureaucratic. He's like, Oh, I just need to write you off my list. And here's my paper. I just got to do this paperwork. And he makes it seem like it's very, just like checking the boxes. Like and I'm not being me. It's don't even, it's me being here. It's not even a big deal. But then he just, then he reveals that he had ulterior motives the entire time he was there. Same thing happens with when he encounters the bastards at the cinema premiere, um, and uh, he's asking Bridget about the the injury, and he's he's pretending to be like nice and cordial, and but it's obvious that he immediately was onto them, and it gets to the point where he's just like laughing about the whole situation, but he has his own ulterior motives, so he kind of like puts this persona in front of the other parties. To kind of make them believe that he's not a threat to them until he is. I think he likes to toy with his prey. I think that's in every one of his inner... If you think about it, every one of his scenes is actually an interrogation. 
So Hans with La Petite, and then Hans with Emmanuel, who's also Shoshana at the restaurant. Hans with the German soldier at the bar after the shootout. Hans with the bastards who are undercover at the movie premiere. Hans with Bridget von Hammersmark. Hans with Aldo and Yudovich. And then the final scene is actually an interrogation that Aldo Rain has on Hans when he's asking, what are you going to do with that handsome SS uniform? <laughs> we don't like that. So every one, of his situ- every one of his scenes is pretty much an interrogation. And I think he likes to toy with his prey in different ways. I think the the thing that he does when he walks into Le Petit in their home is... He, he obviously pays special attention to Charlotte because of the way she looks versus her sisters. He takes the milk and just drains it in one gulp. And then w- when he brought up the pipe, I think like Sherlock Holmes, I believe I, I watched an interview where Tarantino says that the significance of the pipe is that he takes it out only as a celebration because it's at that point that he's he's figured it out and he's won. And so that's why he takes out the pipe to celebrate. It seems as though he's the most relaxed in that moment when he's lighting his pipe. Like he knows he won. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. So that's a great point. And in terms of the milk, I think that he him drinking the milk in one gulp is him exerting dominance, you know, like complete dominance over this room um by not just taking a sip but downing the entire glass. It's kind of intim- an intimidating thing to do. And he just like stares at them. Yeah. And it's, it, you would expect him to drink liquor, and that's what's so surprising because he never drinks liquor. And he does grab a champagne flute at the cinema, but he never he never drinks from it. So you could think that maybe Hans Landen ne- doesn't even drink alcohol. Yeah, and the thing with Hans, he's very well-mannered. He's educated, clearly. He's eloquent, very polite, but he's also a murderous psychopath that treats other humans as below him. So it's in a way, if he didn't have that SS uniform, he'd come across as a perfect gentleman. And again, he's an opportunist. He probably wouldn't be doing this if the Nazi party didn't exist. He'd probably be a detective. But I think he's so invested in just personal gain and success. And clearly, being a detective for the Nazi party is paying off. He lives high societies, you know, eats in fancy restaurants. He's he has all these escapades with women in Germany and, and French women. So he's clearly been been paid well and he enjoys that aspect of his career. But also, he doesn't like to get his hands too dirty. Because yes, he kills Bridget at the end of the film, but I think that was just extreme circumstances. He's trying to carry out his plan that he just came up with. That was an important role of his plan. And so, for example, in the scene with La Petite, he offers La Petite the chance to give up the family that he's hiding and he says it's because he like he wants it if if lapati can make his job any easier he'll reward him for it and he also has this flair about his interactions with people when he's toying with them and when he's figuring things out and it's like he's on stage and he's in a, he's the lead actor in this play and he's having so much fun and he's he's very playful and it's theatrical and he's expressive with his hands but then also he's very serious at times like when he does when he's finally grilling Le Petit about where the Jews are underneath the floorboards and he's just he just flips on a dime into this very serious mode and it's, it's terrifying to see and right when he does Tarantino zooms in on him with a close-up because the, the tone has completely changed. And I think my favorite part of the flair that you mentioned, it's got to be at the cinema when he hears that um, Bridget injure, injured her leg 
from mountain climbing and he bursts into such extravagant laughter he like he like takes t 10 steps backwards and like nearly bumps into someone because he can't stop laughing so hard because and you know he yeah. she, he knows that she's the one that gets shot yeah. or is missing and yeah. he's just like I wonder what she's gonna say yeah. about this injury yeah. and he's like this is so ridiculous like these people are so stupid <laughs> <laughs> like I, he, I think he's looking at the four of them like they're complete idiots all four of them like this is ridiculous he also likes to hear people talk about him which is why he asked Le, Le Petit if he knows who he is what his job is and, and then what his nickname is that's been given to him by the Jewish population which is the Jew Hunter and he even boasts about the title because he says he's deserved it but later on in the film when he's talking to Yudovich and Aldo Rain, he talks about how he, he hates the Jew Hunter for a nickname because he can't control what it is but it also kind of it brings down in his mind what his job is and how, how hard he works in a way or, or how, how difficult it is to carry out his job and I think he does that there because I think he has a certain amount of respect for Aldo to to admit the truth to Aldo. Like, why would he? Why? What, what, for what other reason would he tell Aldo that he hates the nickname than than that he respects him on a certain level? And yeah, and his true loyalties I think only rely with himself. Like the prospect of ending the war, he jumps at that moment in a second because he's going to get out on a great deal. And you can imagine that. Because he's not ideologically invested in the Nazi party, he's not like a fanatic like a lot of, these, a lot of the Nazi high class and German soldiers, he's objective and an opportunist, and he even calls the National Socialist, he calls the National Socialist Party of Germany tyrannical on the, on the radio too, and when he's talking to Aldo and Yudovich, so he obviously thinks objectively and recognizes the Nazi party for what it is, so it possibly makes him even more evil that it doesn't bother him that he's using it to his advantage. And I think someone as smart as him, he probably foresaw the eventual and imminent end of the uh, the Nazi party and how it would eventually come to fruition. So I think that when an opportunity to escape presented itself, he jumped on it for that reason. Yeah, you can imagine he's been thinking that in a way. I need an out. Not only do I need an out, I need a way to cover my back so that I'm not in front of a tribunal later on yeah. and getting uh, imprisoned or even taken out because of my horrible crimes. Yeah. And Hans Landa, he's very similar to Amon Goth in uh, Schindler's List. They're both Austrian. They have similar mannerisms. They're both very energetic at times and theatrical. But I think the main distinction is Hans works again for the Nazi parties for personal gain, whereas Amon seems more of a believer. And they both use psychological warfare, but the main distinction between their methods is Hans is a detective, whereas Amon is simply just a brutalizer of the imprisoned. And Goth was real. It was, it was a real person, and he was probably he's probably one of the most despicable person that ever lived on the planet of the Earth, on on the planet. So, uh, it's a it's a it's a difficult time to even make a movie about or talk about. But I think that I mean these movies have to get made so that we it's important to remember history and the and the worst parts of history so that we can learn and grow from it. So I think characters like this, it's tough to see them on screen, but I think it's also necessary. And there's a character that's very important to. Hans Lahn and it's Shoshana or Emmanuel, depending on what part of the film it is in. The way that she's sort of connected, obviously, with Hans Landa is that he murdered her family, but also the way he says adieu versus au revoir in that scene. And so adieu is a goodbye used in French for someone you don't know when you'll see them again. And obviously, he uses that when he's telling his German soldiers to shoot the ground to shoot the Nazis under the cupboard, I mean, under the floorboards. But then he says au revoir to Shoshana when he's saying goodbye to her, which generally really translates until I see you again. And so the next scene that Hans Landa's in is actually when he sees Shoshana again at the restaurant. Oh, wow. They, I didn't know that distinction between the goodbyes. That's really interesting. 
So I think it ties into, obviously they're going to be connected later on in the film, but also did Hans recognize Emmanuel as Shoshana later on? I don't think he recognized her. I think that he obviously is testing her in the cafe. Not a cafe, in the restaurant. I think he's testing her because she's such a young theater owner. It's very, it can be suspicious. And yeah, I believe her passport, her papers say that she's like 18. Yeah, actually 17, which is even more suspicious that someone that young owns a theater and the, but she's, she explains it. So I think that Hans initially, he's sus- suspicious of her, but, uh, by the time they're eating, I think that he's not worried about her. He just thinks that she's very nervous around him because he's a German officer. I think it's possible that he does recognize her because if you watch the scene, he orders her milk and he orders her a strudel, which at the time was made with pork fat. So he would know it's not kosher. She's clearly very uncomfortable. And then I think just the way that at the end of their conversation, after he's talking and asking about Frederick Zoller in her theater, he, he just gives her that same look that he gives La Petite at the beginning of the film. The very serious look, the glare, like he's just reading through her. And obviously you can assume, he says that, oh, I forgot what I was going to ask you. But I think Hans Landa is such an intelligent guy. He always knows what he's going to say and what he's doing that it seems unlikely that unlikely that he lost his train of thought there. So I think maybe he's just curious where these events are going to lead to because he's an opportunist and maybe he maybe he even knew about Operation Kino or heard wind of it before. I mean, that's a it's an interesting theory. I just I don't see how he if he knew that she was a Jew, that he wouldn't let her go on the situation. And I don't think that he recognized her because he didn't see her face in the opening scene. But he could have seen photos because if you think about it, he re- he knows all the bastards by name without looking at their face. But why didn't he have time. why didn't he have photos in the opening scene? We we don't know that. He did. He had a whole book and all. He, he's right. He's literally writing down their names, asking the ages. So if he's asked, Tarantino didn't show us every single page in that folder. I, I don't think that he saw Shoshana at all. I don't think there would have been a documented photo of her. Um, there's just just a, a name on a on a list, and he didn't see her. He just saw the back of her. So he doesn't know what she looks like. I mean, obviously he he could probably detect that she's blonde, but I think that it's highly unlikely like that he recognized her. I think he tests her in the op- in the beginning of the strudel scene, but I don't think. He he ends that scene knowing who she is. Yeah, you're probably right. It's just fun to think of, about. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to think about. It's I think that Tarantino having him order milk is kind of like a joke for us. Yeah, probably. You know what I mean? Because then Shoshana's reaction is like, <gasps> and you kind of when I saw it for the first time, I laughed. No, yeah, I, actually, I, yeah. I think I laugh every time I see it. So yeah. I think it's a joke for us more than anything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and so Shoshana Dreyfus. A.K.A. Manuel Mimu, sorry, Mimu, Mimu, sorry, I'm so bad at French pronunciation. And played by Melanie Laurent, uh, easily the most tragic character in the film. Shoshana, obvi- no, Shoshana narrowly escapes the slaying of her entire family in front of her eyes, and she's you know running away covered in blood. But she's only then continually hounded by Nazis in her new life because Frederick Zoller is trying to court her. And although Shoshana, she admirably sacrifices her life to kill the Nazi high command, her plan went completely unnoticed by anyone who, to acknowledge it. And if and no one living knows what she and Marcel did, sacrificing their lives with this plan. Yeah, not even the bastards. Yeah, she died a hero to, for no one to remember because she had no idea op- about Operation Kino, and Operation Kino had no idea about her. So in a way, she you know could represent the, the Jewish experience during the Holocaust of an entire population turned to ghost that has very few living people to remember them or the experiences. Tarantino actually wrote Shoshana as... 
in the early drafts of the script as more of a, a central figure in the French resistance and rebellious forces. And she was actually kind of like a hit, a hit woman in the French rebellion. And she would um, go out assassinating as many German officers and high commanders as she could. And she even like would keep a list of all the names she killed. But then, like I said earlier, he wrote the first draft of the story before Kill Bill. And then when he made Kill Bill, he was like, you know what, Shoshana doing that and in, in Glorious would be way too close to Beatrix Kiddo and Kill Bill. So I, in order to uh, deter comparisons to Beatrix, he changed Shoshana's story to be more of a personal one and more of a, a believable one. Because, I, I mean, I love Kill Bill, but Beatrix Kiddo, it's not like a realistic character. It's a fun character. But that's the whole point. And so if that was set in this movie, it wouldn't really feel the same. And so I think he changed that to make it feel more grounded for Shoshana's storyline. Yeah, her transformation from desperate survivor to mass murdering Nazi killer is extraordinary. And she has <laughs> she has no hesitations when she decides that she wants to burn the entire theater down to kill all the people in the high command once she finds out that the Führer, the Führer, Fuhrer, Fuhrer, Fuhrer is going to be there. And you can imagine that she's just been biding her time, waiting for the opportunity to carry out revenge for her family, which is why I love the scene where she's getting ready for the movie premiere and she does her makeup like it's war paint for a second. And, you know, yeah. David Bowie's like, cat people is blasting. And she's such an incredible character. And she reminds me so much, obviously, of Beatrix Kittle, but in Jackie, as, as well as Jackie Brown, too. And one of my favorite moments of, of the film is actually a reference to the opening scene of the film. So when she burns, when she's burning down the theater and and the talking head is on the screen, her talking head is on the the big theater screen. Um, she's she speaks in English. And remember her her partner, I can't remember his Marcel. name. Marcel. Marcel. He reminds her when they're filming the the dialogue um, for the talking head to to. He's like, remember, speak in English. Speak in English. It's interesting because most German officers in high command didn't speak English, so they wouldn't have understood what she was saying. This actually, I think, is done on purpose by her because it's what Hans Landa did to the in the La Petite house when they spoke English so that Shoshana and her family, the other Dreyfuses, didn't know what they were saying before they were killed. And so I think that it's a calling card to how her family was killed by the Germans after they spoke English, and now he, she's killing the Germans um, after she speaks English. Well, her storyline is very interesting because... It also ties in with Frederick Zoller, who's a Nazi war hero. He killed hundreds of Allied troops single-handedly. He's admired by German officers that outrank him, and even the Nazi, the French Nazi sympathizers, all the girlfriends of the German soldiers, and they get their autographs. And Shoshana is being courted by Frederick Zoller, and she wants obviously nothing to do with him. And we have the scenes where she's she's watching Frederick be hounded by fans and getting autographs and once she learns about his exploits she wants even less to do with him at the time you could argue frederick is actually the most tragic character in the movie besides shoshana yeah because yes he's a horrible person and he's a nazi and he killed hundreds of american soldiers in italy um as a nazi but uh, you could call him a tragic character in terms of he i think he really loves shoshana deeply and it's not just an infatuation i think he's like full full on in love with her and the, the, that's why in the theater, um, in the back room, that's why he gets uh, very aggressive and threatens her because um, she's rejecting him f for the last time. And the woman he loves ends up shooting him like five times in the chest. So I think that you can look at Frederick as a tragic character in a way. Yeah, I mean, you could say that 
he does show he's human in a way because of the way he feels about Shoshana, but also because, you know, he does show he's, he's human when he's watching Nation's Pride and he can't watch the killing because it reminds him of what he's done. And it doesn't make him a completely heartless man that enjoys killing people. But again, he did murder 500 people or something like that. 250. So, 250 total. So, so he's not a good guy, obviously. But I think Tarantino created this like Romeo and Juliet situation with with Frederick and Shoshana, this like love that could never happen. And then even the way they die, it's very similar to Romeo and Juliet, where where Juliet fakes her death and Romeo comes to find Juliet, who has drunk the sleep serum to appear dead. Romeo kisses Juliet, drinks the poison, kisses Juliet once more before dying. Then Juliet wakes to find Romeo dead, kisses him, and then stabs herself with a dagger. It's very similar to the way Shoshana shoots Frederick. Frederick fakes being dead only to shoot Shoshana multiple times. And then they both die. Tarantino gets that brilliant overhead ceiling shot looking down at them both. That was such a surprise. And you're great. That, that's a great correlation. Like the, That's a great parallel to Romeo and Juliet. I think you're 100% accurate with that. It, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I think it's 100% spot, yeah. spot on. And in terms of the film Nation's Pride... Uh, it wasn't actually made by Tarantino. Uh, he actually tapped Eli Roth to make the movie. So Eli Roth and his brother shot the film Nation's Pride with uh, uh, Daniel Bruhl. And they did it over, I think, two days. And they shot so many different setups. I think they shot uh, over 200 setups because Tarantino wanted the film to... It, he didn't want it to play like, oh, it's a short film. It needs to be... A two and a half. It needs to look like it was a two and a half hour long movie, and we just showed different bits of it. So it needs a lot of different camera angles and and shots and and all these different looks to make it seem bigger than it really is. And then let's talk about the bastards. Let's get them Nazis starting with <laughs> with Aldo Rain, Aldo the Apache, and so Aldo Rain, played by the great Brad Pitt, is terrific in this movie. He exudes cool like usual in every role he's in. And he makes the Nazi hunting business seem like so much fun, and you know, business is a booming. Uh, Aldo is Aldo is part Native American, plus enjoys the act of scalping Nazis like the Apache, hence his nickname, Aldo the Apache. And the first thing we notice about Aldo in this film when we see him is he's got this giant scar across his neck, which is from an attempted hanging, we can assume, or lynching, because he was fighting in the KKK back in America before World War II started. So I believe the backstory is that he was tried to be hung by the KKK. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And I think Aldo in this film, he represents punishment. And um, I think he represents justice because his whole goal is to kill as many Nazis as possible. I said Nazis. It's fun to say Nazis. Yeah. I'm just going to keep saying like that. Kill movie. as many Nazis as possible. And then the ones that do get away or the ones that they do um, let free, he, he marks them with that swastika cut into their forehead so i think that even if a nazi isn't punished by them he will find a way for them to still face some kind of discipline even if they are freed yeah despite his, his reputation he actually kills one person he kills the uh on screen he shoots the driver the radio guy that yeah, in front is of part of the Hazlada. deal yeah he's like they don't give a crap about him they only care about you <laughs> So he actually only kills one person on screen, whereas the bastards kill much more. And, but you can argue that he's the captain of the squad, so yeah. he's he's responsible for he's every. He's clearly death. a violent, brutal, apathetically apathetic guy when it comes to the Nazis. But he's also intelligent, like he knows what loquacious, loquacious means, which you wouldn't expect someone who who's <laughs> moonshining in Tennessee to know what that word means. Uh, he's very patriotic, and he has no qualms about just killing as many Nazis as possible with glee. 
Um, he's also very charming and a little arrogant because he th thinks he can get by speaking Italian when he doesn't speak really a word of Italian. And also he shows his arrogance when um, after he kills the driver and Hans Landa's like, what are you doing? This He thinks that uh, Aldo's going to get severely punished for it. And Aldo just goes, nah, I'll probably be chewed out. I've been, been chewed, chewed out before. before. <laughs> <laughs> Tarantino, I think, has confirmed that Aldo Rain is the grandfather of Floyd. And Floyd... It was played by Brad Pitt in True Romance. He's the that pothead roommate. Oh, the stoner. Yeah, the stoner <laughs> lying on the couch. And apparently Aldo is his either grandfather or great-grandfather. And I wonder if Cliff Booth is just like a... Like a the character in some ways is just like an Easter egg in a way to Aldo Rain because obviously they they speak very similarly. They have a very similar tone, obviously, to Brad Pitt. But he also has like the... The Native American tattoo on his arm, the the chief, and then kind of like his shoes are very Native American esque style in a way. So maybe there it's just kind of a reference back to Aldo. I would say no. I would say that the the tattoo would be a reference to Western films, and I, I mean it could be a nod. I don't think the accent is close enough to be a reference because Cliff, he has a hint of an accent, but it's not too much of. You can't really determine where he's from, whereas. Aldo is definitely from the south so I mean it could be but I, I would say it probably isn't but one of my favorite things about Aldo is that uh he he sniffs something a few times in the movie and it's like what is is he sniffing cocaine but what he's sniffing is uh is ground up tobacco oh I always thought he was like doing cocaine or no, something no, yeah so it's, it's tobacco grounds that must have been common in more times than yeah that. it was and also that in that cinema scene at the premiere Aldo was wearing that white tuxedo with the red flower on it. And this is Tarantino referencing James Bond when Sean Connery wore this uh, same white suit with the red flower. And then Daniel Craig wore this suit yeah, in Spectre. Say. And then also Harrison Ford wore the same suit in Temple of Doom. So they're all references to Sean Connery's James Bond. Aldo's not really in a ton of this film, if you think about it, but until the third act, really, when we're at the movie theater, movie premiere, he has, like, the scene with the bastards in the beginning talking about what they're going to be doing when they get in, and then that great scene where they're interrogating the Nazis while they're in France to try to find out the other crop patrol that's, that's around here somewhere. And so besides that, he kind of, he doesn't have a huge role until we're in the third act in Operation Kino. I mean, that's the way Tarantino, I think, loves to write his movies. The same thing with Pulp Fiction. Like, if you think about, like, Vincent Vega, like, he's in the movie and then he's not in the movie for a long time, you know? And and that's just the way he likes to write his movies. And I think it's, that's the, when you have an ensemble, I think what most writers will do is they try to give everyone as much screen time as possible because an ensemble means you have a, a cast of several actors who are very prominent actors in their prominent parts of the movie. So let's give them a few minutes here and then give them a scene and then give them a scene. So I think they try to evenly space it out as much as they can where Tarantino's like, whenever he becomes relevant, you'll see him. You know what I mean? So he doesn't try to squeeze them into the movie uh, to be like evenly seen. And I love how he does the swastika on the Nazis' foreheads because... He believes so much in the evil of the Nazi party that no matter what you've done and if you've repented or you've made a deal, nothing should absolve you of what you've done in your crimes. And that's the whole point of the swastika on the forehead. Isn't it true that Adam Sandler was originally cast as one of the bastards? He wasn't cast. He was actually offered the bear Jew, Donny Donovich, but he couldn't mm. do it because I think he was filming like Grown Ups 2 or something, or Grown Ups. <laughs> one of those movies, I hope he got paid a lot. But um, so it's just, he couldn't do it timing wise, but there's actually a great deep fake of Adam Sandler as the bear Jew in the whole scene. It's actually really incredible. That would have been funny. 
I like Eli Roth. He did a pretty good Boston accent. It was, it was pretty good. Yeah, he's pretty good. A yeah. little over the top, but yeah, yeah. he's a solid actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a great director, too. Yeah, he's an awesome director. And BJ Novak, who's famous for being Ryan on The Office, he's plays one of the bastards, Tudovich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was, uh, when he was casting this and he, and he was filming, um, they explained, it was filming at the same time as The Office production. And so they explained Ryan's absence in the office as he's, it's that moment when they're like, oh, he's traveling. He's in Thailand with friends. Oh, yeah. So that's when they, when they say that in the office, it's that he was actually making this. <laughs> yeah. And the bear Jew's great played by Eli Roth. And besides the bear Jew, Hugo Stiglitz is, is a great bastard too. And the cool thing about him is he's, again, I think that Tarantino wanted to make characters like him and Bridget von Hammersmark who, to show that not all Germans bought into the Nazi party, they were against it, but they had to kind of hide their identity or, or, or show face to out of survival. But Hugo probably at that point can't take enough of it. And so he ends up just murdering as many high class <laughs> officers as he can. I love the, uh, the Sam Jackson narration of his little, ba- of his little backstory. <laughs> Everyone in the German army knows Hugo Stieglitz. Stieglitz. And, uh, that actor, uh, Till Schwelger, he's a, he's a famous German actor. You've seen it. I've seen him in a ton of stuff. I, I think he's one of those actors in American movies that like, they just, you've seen them in a ton of stuff, but you can't remember their name. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I definitely recognized him when I saw him in this movie and he always, he's always said that he never wanted to play a Nazi and he only accepted this role be, on the condition that he kills a Nazi in every scene he's in. <laughs> and so Tarantino agreed. He's okay. Okay. Every scene you're in, you get to kill a Nazi. And a really cool fact about Donnie Donowitz is uh, Tarantino cut, I think, maybe 40 minutes from his uh, original cut. And a lot of the footage was backstory on some of the bastards. And Donnie Donowitz had a great little backstory where it went to a, a flashback to, I think he's from, I can't remember what part of Boston he's from, but he's in a Jewish neighborhood in Boston. And um, that baseball bat he he uses, it's in this scene and it's, the way to depict it is that he's he's a baseball player and not professionally, but he's going he's been drafted for the war, and his neighbors and family tell him to to kill as many Nazis as he can, and that's when he decides that he's gonna write uh, a notch into the bat every time he kills one, and that thing is full of notches. Yeah, and then we get British intelligence involved with Operation Kino with Archie Hickox, who's played by the great Michael Fassbender. This was his big breakout role. Obviously, he was in some films by Steve McQueen, but not a lot of people had seen them yet. Like 300. Yeah, um, but he. this was his first, I think, big ex- explosion to American audiences. And the, I love how he's introduced by the shock of seeing Winston Churchill in the same room as him. And you can imagine what that's like for for uh, a British soldier. And then we learn that he's fluent in German. He's he's a film critic. He studied German film. And then we get the briefing with Operation Kino, where Bridget von Hammersmark, a German movie star, is a British spy. And I love Mike Myers in this scene because he his accent is so like over the top. And just from your familiarity of him playing Austin Powers, I think that. Tarantino hired him as just like, let's have fun for a little bit. I mean, this is such, it's so much fun to see him in this role. And I, I, I love how Winston Churchill is in there, but he, he's just in the background and he only says, brief him. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> How's he doing? <laughs> I bet a lot of people don't even realize that, that yeah. I didn't, the first time I saw it, I was like, who was that old guy? And then I had to look it up and I was like, oh, that was Winston Churchill. <laughs> and then you're like, he's always oh, smoking a cigar. And okay. he's huge and he's wearing a suit. Yeah. British intelligence. But Archie's a great character. He's very eloquent and he's very fast thinking on his feet, obviously, in the pub scene when he's trying to explain 
to the Nazi officer that he's from Pitzpalu. That's why his accent sounds funny. And then we have the the pub scene, which is it's hard to decide which scene's better, the opening scene or the pub scene in terms of dialogue and tension. And they're both phenomenal. And I tend to to think that the the opening scene's my favorite because it just it just sets this world up so amazingly and the characters so well and. But I love this pub scene as well, and Diane Kruger is phenomenal as Von Hammersmark. I would say the difference between the scenes is with the pub scene, the tension is there immediately because right when they walk into the bar, they see Nazi soldiers. Yeah. Whereas the opening scene, Tarantino waits like five minutes or so until he reveals the Jews under the floorboard. So the tension's there, but it's not as as dangerous of a situation we think until we see the Jews, and then. Then the suspense and the tension grows, but I think with the bar scene, the tension is there immediately. So I think that's the main difference is the whole thing is just like you're on the edge of like what's going to happen. Yeah, and Von Hammersmark is really interesting because she's an actor. So well, I she- want to talk about um, R.J. Cox first. Oh, sorry, I haven't been able to say anything about him yet. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, Hickox um, is found out as being a spy because of his uh, poor accent, which he hasn't. Initially, the hint is because the first clue is his poor accent, which he isn't able to hide. Um, and this is ironic because Michael Fassbender was actually born in Germany and raised in Germany until he was in like a, a teenager and then he moved to Ireland. So his first language is actually German. And so his, he's especially talented at being able to speak in a perfect German accent, which is ironic because his character isn't able to. And then the problem with Archie is he is an overly confident person to the point of his own failure. And he's an overly arrogant person. So for example... He thinks that he is uh, an expert on German culture, which is why he thinks he's suited for this mission and and seems supremely confident he'll be able to carry it out. And aside from the accent, he's able to explain that away. And then um, Hellstrom, the the SS officer, believes him eventually. Because von Hammersmark, too. Yeah, having that kind of an ally is is very uh, persuasive. Exactly. So they're able to explain that away to Hellstrom. But then Hellstrom famously recognizes that uh, Archie uses the wrong three. He uses uh, a British three hand signal instead of the German three. Um, and so that was what made Hallstrom, Hallstrom um, discover that he was a spy. And this is ironic because Archie believed himself to be an expert on German culture, but he only knew German culture through German films. And so he never was exposed to a, a nuanced part of being German as giving the right hand signal for the number three. And so even though he's supremely confident, it ends up biting him in the ass at the end. And Von Hammersmark, she's also very confident, but she's kind of got like two personalities, which you can probably argue that a lot of actors do because they have like the public persona, the the talk show persona. It's very charming and and very witty. Like she is in this in the pub scenes, and she knows how to talk to her and a, a table full of people and entertain them or a room full of people entertain them. And then there's the other personality where they're not bubbly, they're not charming, and she's kind of just cynical. Like she says, she's like, I like drinking, ordering restaurants, and, and something else. So she's she's not really like that personality that she shows. Is, it seems like a facade, and like a lot of her life is an act to not be found out that she's a, a British spy actually undercover. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Actors do have a duality about them in terms of public persona and real persona, and then even the actor acting in a scene so there's actually probably three personas they they have and the thing with hammersmark is bridget von hammersmark was actually based on a real a real person not an actor but a very famous dutch dancer 
who ended up providing valuable intelligence to Allied forces during the war. And Tarantino actually references two classical romantic films. Obviously, we talked about Romeo and Juliet, but he also references Cinderella, the fairy tale with, with uh, Hammer's Mark, when Hans Landa puts the shoe on her fit and he says, and it fits. So he actually references two classical love stories. When she when he tells her to reach in his coat pocket and pull out what she finds, and then you can see her face when she realizes it's the heel. And, she, and it's like, oh my God. And she pulls it out. And then she's, it's like, then she's like, okay, I'm fucked. I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you think that Hans kills Bridget? Because m maybe it's because she's a traitor. Or maybe also, like you said earlier, that he's trying to tie up the loose ends for his plan that he's carrying out during Operation Kino while the Nazi High Command's watching the film that he's, you know, improvising on the spot. But also maybe for de her denying his advances for years, which she actually hints at in their conversation at the at the movie theater lobby when she's like, oh, I've known all of your, too many of your past flames to keep falling for that. I would say he kills her just out of vengeance for betraying her their country. And but their, again, he's and not very ideological. I guess. I think it's because of the advances and that she, he never got her, you know what I mean? Because he's always like going after women. That's what they insinuate multiple times in the film. Uh, well, I would say that, so even though he's not extremely passionate about the Nazi regime, I think that Hans Landa views anyone that is opponent of the... I think he views someone who is his opponent as someone who's like a Jew. So maybe he, for him, Bridget became comparable to a Jew. It's possible because he doesn't have to kill her. She could she yeah. could survive and, and have a life in America. You know, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting thing, thing to talk about and think about. Yeah, I never thought about why she why he killed her. I'm still going with because she never uh, accepted his advances. And you can assume is that what you would do? <laughs> oh my god, dude! <laughs> I still think it's because her denying his his uh, advances for years, which I think you can assume has been going on for probably a decade between them, because he's high up in high society and, he, and they they're old friends, you know. And the scene in which Hans Landa actually chokes, not, not the scene, and the moment in which Hans Landa actually chokes Bridget, um, it's actually Tarantino on set um, was given permission by Diane Kruger. Um, she allowed him to actually physically for real choke her. Um, so she did not have air for several, for several moments during the scene. And Tarantino... Um, when he felt that he got the shot he wanted, he let go and they cut the camera. And so it's a very complicated situation where did he go too far? And what is like a, a line in that situation? Yeah, it's very questionable. I would prefer that directors, he does this in Kill Bill too, in Kill Bill when he, uh, when Beatrix Kittle gets choked with the chain, he's the one that's holding the chain. So I think it's very questionable, and I'm not a huge fan of directors sort of inserting themselves in stunt work. Of course, he got the permission of both Uma Thurman and Diane Kruger in the scenes and the moments, but still, I would prefer, if I was making a film, I would leave that to professionals, to experts, and other actors or stunt people. I agree. I think that an expert or a trained professional should be doing something like that for sure. I love the third act of this movie because... There's so many intense moments happening, these storylines that are all intersecting finally, and Tarantino just makes it so fun at the same time where the 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 bastards who Donnie 
and Omar are dressed up in the tuxedos. They're Italians. They're like going through the the audiences in the movie theater and scusi, scusi, pardon, pardon. And they can't speak Italian even though they're supposed to be Italians. And then at the same time, they're they're they have dynamite strapped to their ankles. And also Shoshana, she's her and Marcel are planning to light the fire to burn down the entire theater. But it's also it's so light and fun at times. In addition to it being very serious, and a lot of people are about to die in a moment. And also this movie contains a great Mexican standoff in that bar scene. And Mexican standoffs are a trademark of Tarantino. Nearly every single one of his movies has a a very intense Mexican standoff or multiple. And so, for example, in Reservoir Dogs, it has multiple Mexican standoffs. The whole movie is basically a Mexican standoff. (laughs) Pulp Fiction, the opening diner scene is a Mexican standoff. And also the final scene, Kill Bill, that final battle, you could say, is a Mexican standoff. And then the hotel room scene in Kill Bill 2 when she's trying to tell the other assassin that she just found out she's pregnant. Um, Death Proof doesn't have a a Mexican standoff scene. But um, this scene in Bastards... Django, you could say the ending shootout is a Mexican standoff. Uh, Hateful Eight, there are multiple Mexican standoffs. And then in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you could say that the final scene is a Mexican standoff because although uh, Cliff doesn't have a gun, he does have the dog at the ready. (laughs) Want to do fun facts? Yeah, let's do fun facts. We all know how this ends with, uh, obviously, Hans Landa makes the deal, but that's a bingo. Aldo Rain will not let him get away without walking around with the Nazi uniform for the rest of his life by... By signing his masterpiece into his forehead with his giant knife, etching I, it, etching his masterpiece. When Aldo says, "I think that might be my masterpiece," I think that that's Tarantino saying that to us. I think that so this too. is his masterpiece. This is the only movie that Brad Pitt has made as a leading actor with the Weinstein Company, um, or its previous iteration, Miramax, and those companies were headed by Harvey Weinstein, and they had a the, a very tumultuous relationship because. Harvey Weinstein harassed Gwyneth Paltrow and then Brad Pitt uh, confronted Weinstein and, and threatened him that if he ever did it again, he would like kick his, he would like kick his ass. And so Brad Pitt always refused to ever work with Harvey Weinstein, but he only said yes to this because it was Tarantino. Obviously, we all know that the title for Inglorious Bastards, both words are misspelled on purpose and writer-director Quentin Tarantino gave the, this following answer when asked about it, he said, here's the thing. I'm never going to explain that. You do an artistic flourish like that, and to explain it, it would just take the piss out of it and invalidate the whole stroke in the first place. The first German soldier that is scalped in the movie is actually a realistic-looking dummy version of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> the role of Shoshana Dreyfus's father, Jacob, who's very briefly seen hiding beneath the floorboards and in the La Petite Farmhouse was played by Patrick Elias, whose father, Buddy Elias, was a first cousin of Anne Frank. Quentin Tarantino was actually considering abandoning the film entirely because he couldn't find the right actor to play Hans Landa, um, figuring that he wrote a role that was unplayable. But then when he found Christoph Waltz and saw his audition, he discovered he agreed that he found the perfect actor finally. Simon Pegg was actually originally set to play Lieutenant Archie Hickox, but was forced to pull out of the project because of scheduling conflicts with the event with the adventures of Tintin, which, you know, was a good movie, but this was great. It's unfortunate. <laughs> he, he probably would have been phenomenal, is it? Yeah, he would have been great. That makes I mean, he, I think I would guess he's get he got cast originally because Tarantino and Edgar Wright are very good friends and he loves Shaun of the Dead. It's one of his favorite movies. 
And that ends our episode on Inglorious Bastards. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Go to our website, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Check out all of our merch, our movie posters. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, everybody. Take care, everyone.